The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, welcome to Fathom. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, This is fall break, apparently, so uh, glad that you guys are here. Uh, Thankful to be with you this morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you grab them and open them up to Ephesians chapter 4? I know uh, we just had Philippians read over us, but that's a companion passage to our text today, which is Ephesians 4. Uh, You can open a phone or a tablet. Uh, You can open a hardback black Bible that are under every single chair and open that up to Ephesians chapter 4. That's on page 977 in those Bibles. But would love for you to uh, open up with me, meet me there in Ephesians chapter 4 as you're turning there. I told you I didn't, I didn't grow up in the church. Uh, just to, if you're newer with us, I didn't grow up in the church. I got saved when I was 16, so I was in high school. Um, and, and I, by nature, am, am just kind of a curious guy. I'm, I'm pretty curious. I get into something, and then I really want to, I like want to know every angle of that thing. Uh, so I kind of dive into things and over-research, and I'm just curious. And so when I got saved, when I kind of got in on this Jesus thing, I, I felt like I wanted to learn about it as much as I could. And so I started going from, from church to church, just trying to get my head around this thing, okay? From movement to movement, from denomination to denomination, kind of just picking up a little bit of here and a little bit there, really trying to, I, I had no background in it, so I didn't know what anything really meant. Uh, so I was learning, and I feel like what that did the first few years of my spiritual journey is it kind of developed me into uh, like a spiritual mutt, like a mutt, right? Like dogs who crossbreed, like a, a mutt. Uh, anybody else feel that way in their, in their spirituality? Just kind of like a little bit of this and a little bit of that. That's kind of how I feel. And the thing about mutts, if you know anything about mutts, uh, is that um, a mutt can actually be very resilient and actually at times can be sturdier as a dog over the long haul because uh, mutts tend to avoid some of the predisposed genetic diseases that come with kind of uh, overbreeding and inbreeding within a certain purebred dog. So, so mutts might be a little bit more resilient, even spiritual mutts. Maybe you're a little bit more resilient when it comes to church stuff. But the other thing about mutts um, is that they can, just be, they can just be kind of freaky and weird too. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't know if you've got mutts, but it's like, what is that? Have you ever seen that? Like, what kind of dog, what freakish dog do you have? And you don't know? You're like, I don't know. I got it at the pound. It's like half something and three quarters this. And I don't know what this thing, uh, three quarters, that, that fraction doesn't work actually. Uh, but <laughs> math is not my specialty. But it's not like you can do like a 23 and me for your dog and find out how much, you know, can you? There's a thing. All right. Well, this is turning out great. <laughs> this is great. This is great. My point is, deans, that I am like a spiritual mutt. Some of you might feel this way as well. So it's like I got a little bit of Labrador in me, maybe a little collie. And then every once in a while, like a pit bull will show up, right? And you're like, what percentage of pit bull is he? You know? Uh, so like, you can take me on a walk and I'll play fetch and I'll save little Timmy from the well and then I'll bite you in the face, right? That's just spiritually speaking, okay? Take that to mean whatever you want. And that's how, that's how my early faith upbringing was, all right? Like I, I went from the Catholics to the Methodists to the Baptists to the Presbyterians. And then I found the non-denominational denominations, right? They're their own denomination apparently. And, and the th- here's the thing I learned. The major thing I learned from all these different things is that there are so many ways for Christian groups to divide from one another, to be divided over. So I was baptized as an infant in the Roman Catholic Church. 
So I was, I was sprinkled as an infant because uh, my mom wanted me, to, or actually my grandma, I think, wanted me to. And so then my mom wanted grandma to be happy. And so I got sprinkled as an infant. And they have a process. The Catholics have a process that starts with infant baptism. And then they got a whole bunch of other stuff that we never got to because we never went back. Okay. And then I got saved, like I said, in high school. And the pastor asks me, so have you been baptized? And I'm like, of course I have. As an infant, in the Roman Catholic Church, I have a candle and a certificate that's been in my sock drawer my whole life. That's literally what I had. And, and, and he says, oh, no, no, no. You've got to be believer baptized, like baptized as a believer. Like, that's what it means. And so I was like, okay, that sounds good. So I went to Israel with a group from my church, and I got baptized in the Jordan River, like Jesus did. All right? I'm no mutt. All right? So, and that's what we practice here at Fathom, okay? I, we baptize believers. But then a couple years later, I'm a youth intern. So I'm what Daniel is, okay? Daniel, our youth intern. That's what I was at this other church. And we had some kids from our youth group who uh, were invited to go to a charismatic church down the street. So they went to this charismatic kind of Pentecostal church uh, down the street. And these, uh, these teenage girls came back to our youth group and they said that they had a weird experience at this church. Some people at this church asked them, have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And, and so our girls from our youth group were understandably confused. But then these church members, they, they continue to say, well, well, have you spoken in tongues? Because that's how you know that you've had the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then they proceed, I'm not making this up. They proceeded to surround these 13, 14, 15-year-old girls and pray over them in tongues to try to get them to speak in tongues and receive the Holy Spirit. This is understandably confusing, but this is, again, another division. I didn't know what that meant at that time. I do know what that means now. But it was interesting. It's another division, another split, okay? And then in college, I just kind of ping-ponged all around trying to figure out where I fit, like who I was. So I went to the United Methodist and then to the Free Methodist. Then I went to the Baptist, okay? Southern, general, and conservative. Just try to cover my bases with the Baptists, okay? I tried community churches. I tried Bible churches. I tried Calvary churches. I mean, I tried a lot of different places. I was all over the place. And here's what I found. Every church, every tradition has a lot of things that they can divide over from other Christians, from other churches, from other denominations. And listen, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it is good and right to go to a church that has stances on certain things. I think it's okay. I think it's absolutely okay. But what I want to do today is I want to focus in on what our friend Paul teaches are the things that unite us, that unite all of us, not the things that divide, but the things that unite. Because as Paul moves into the second half of the book of Ephesians, he moves from, behave, uh, moves from beliefs about Christianity to behaviors of Christianity. We talked about this. Chapters one through three focus on belief, right belief. And chapters four through six, then the outworkings of those beliefs our behaviors, and Paul starts by talking about how we behave with one another, with other Christians. So I'm calling today's sermon United. United is what we're calling our sermon today because in the text, Paul, the first behavior he is going to address is calling the church to be united, to be united over some things. 
We'll see it in the text. So we've only got six verses today to cover, okay? So this will only take an hour and a half or so. Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse one. Verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Okay, so that's the transition. That's a transition word. Therefore means to transition. So we're moving from belief to behavior. For three chapters, it's all been about belief. And now he's urging us to, and the, the text says, walk. He's moved to an action, to a behavior, how to walk, how to behave. And the word that Paul uses is worthily. That we need to walk in a manner that is worthy in a worthy manner. So you should live in a worthy manner. You should walk in a worthy manner. You should behave in a worthy manner. And as I thought this week, I thought, gosh, that's a a huge statement. Just just walk worthily. Just, Just be worthy of this stuff. Walk in a way that is worthy to the way that you've been called, which is confusing because for three chapters, he's pretty much said, you're not worthy of all this. So what does it mean to walk in a manner that's worthy of the call that you have been called. Well, Paul is going to be extremely practical with us this morning, and he is going to give us four things, four practical outworkings, and they're absolutely clear in the text. Um, in, these are the ways that we should grow to pursue the unity that he expects from us. So look, you'll see them in, in, in verse two, and then we'll work through them. But look at this, look at verse two. He says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you've been called, verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Real practical. He's real practical. Paul's not always this practical. He is here. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna break those four things down real quick. This is how we walk in unity with one another. And he starts by saying, you got to walk in humility. The first one is humility. The trait of a Christian who's walking united with other Christians is that they are humble. They are humble. Now, humility is a tricky thing. Humility is a tricky attribute to kind of get our heads around because the question is this, can you know if you're humble? Can you know if you're humble? Like if you know you're humble, are you actually humble? Like, so if you're like, oh yeah, well, I say to you, hey, uh, what's the Lord been doing in your life? You're like, yeah, man, God has just been really growing me significantly in the area of humility. And I'm just, I mean, I'm just growing like crazy. I'm getting so humble. Are you? Right? Did you just brag about being humble? Like, can you be arrogant about your humility? Is that, is that a thing? All right. Like, I'm not sure you can even know if you're humble. Actually, every humble person I've met hasn't really known that they're humble. They just are, right? The opposite is true too. Like the opposite of humility is pride. And that one's tricky as well because if you've ever met a proud person, no one who's prideful thinks they're prideful. If you're proud, you don't think you're proud. You just think you're awesome. Seriously, that's, what, that's it. It's like, I'm not prideful. I just do everything better than everybody else. No, you're a jerk too. That's actually another thing that you are. Uh, not just prideful, you're also a jerk. See, this is tricky. These are tricky things. Now the Bible... When talking about humility, we'll make two seemingly opposite but equally uh, important statements. The Bible will say that we are to humble ourselves 
Like humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself. So it's something that you do to yourself. But then also, we can be humbled. At times, God will humble the proud. But either way, whether you are humbling you or you are being humbled, the truth is this. Humility is an action. It's an action. You are either humbled or you are humbling yourself, but it is not a feeling. I don't, you don't feel humble. It's not something that you feel. It's something that you do. It's something that you are. So biblically, the idea of humility is this, it's this action meaning to be brought low, to be brought low, to have a sober-minded view of one's self and to recognize that you are low when compared to the almighty, powerful God of the universe who saved you. That's humility, is knowing your right place. And that is a lowly place when compared to God. Now, people misunderstand humility all the time, and they think that it means that you just have to have a low self-esteem, right? That humility is some sort of like meek, low sort of view of self. But that's not what it means. It means having this right estimation of who you are in comparison to God. So you may have heard the saying, and I think it goes, it's true. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is actually thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of you. It's actually thinking about you less. It's thinking about others. It's thinking about God. It's not thinking of yourself. So Sometimes Christians will mistakenly think, well, humility means I don't have any conviction. I don't have any sort of confidence. Like I don't want to be prideful. So I'm just going to be quiet and I won't ever stand up for what I believe in because I don't want people to think that I'm prideful. But this is not being humble. It's not being weak. Humility and weakness are not synonymous. Actually, humility is showing great strength. Okay, being humble isn't being wishy-washy about yourself or about your beliefs. It's not thinking, about your, thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. So it's, it's sober-mindedness, okay? And this is what, it's, it's knowing what Paul has said in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Like if you know what he has said and actually embody that, that you were dead in your sins and that by grace alone, he made you alive, you won't boast in yourself, if you really know that, you will be humble. You just will be. It's the natural outworking of a true belief in the gospel. So this is how Paul says we need to pursue being united. Being united as a church, he says you should be humble. Why? Because there's nothing more divisive than arrogant people. Arrogance is such a divisive quality. There's nothing quite so divisive as men and women who think that they are who they are and they have what they have and they've overcome what they've overcome because of themselves in their own strength. Again, this is why the belief preceding behavior piece is so important. If we really believe who the text says we are in Christ, we will walk in humility. We'll be humble. All right, that's the first one, humility. Second, we walk in gentleness. Gentleness. Now, gentleness and humility, this is a pair. These two walk together. They work together in this, uh, gentleness and humility. So humility is my inward essence. Humility is my inward essence, whereas gentleness is, is its outward expression, okay? Uh, uh, in other words, gentleness is what humility looks like in public. 
That's what gentleness is. Um, I'll show you, okay? A parallel passage to this is Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. I'll put this up on the screen. Let's read this. Uh, this is Paul saying, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, that's a sin or a, a transgression or a sin. If anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that's, that's referring to Christians, so not like super spiritual, just like if you're spiritual, if you have the spirit, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There's that word. And then it says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So this is the instruction Paul gives us for how to handle within the church someone who the text says is caught in sin. They've been caught in it. They've been found out for their transgression. And Paul says, the language, it says, restore him. You who are spiritual should restore him. Now, the word for restore in the Greek uh, comes with this image associated with it. And that is of someone who has had a dislocated bone, like a dislocated shoulder or finger or arm or something like that, a dislocated bone. And then a friend comes to them and puts that bone back into place. That's the image that goes along with that word restore. Relocate that person back to where they ought to be, their proper positioning. You ever look, dislocate a bone? It's a, I mean, it's unbelievably painful. You, I mean, we, it's football season. You watch that, some dude just, boom, like their, their finger gets dislocated and it's like hanging all gross. You've seen this? And they just pop that thing back into place and tape it up and they play some more. I mean, I know that's graphic, but that's, that's the image here. This person has gotten out of location. They've been dislocated and it's extremely painful. And listen, it's gross. They've been caught in it. You see that finger hanging and then you walk over to them and you restore them. You relocate that joint into its correct place. But then the text, it says how we are to restore them. It gives a qualification that we seek to restore him with a spirit of gentleness. So you're gentle in how you move towards them. You're gentle. You move towards them with empathy, with compassion, with gentleness. It's humility lived out. Knowing, because of that last sentence, keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted. Knowing that we are made of the same stuff that they're made of. And we could very easily become disjointed as well. So that's gentleness. It pairs with humility as the way we are to walk. Now, like I said, pride is the opposite of humility. The opposite of gentleness can occur and destroy a church's unity. The opposite of gentleness can occur, and it's when somebody assumes that their goodness is something that they've achieved. Remember, it's this pride thing. I did this. I'm the one who did this. So they feel conceited and proud when, when they see other people's sins, they say things like, I can't believe you did that. How could you do that thing? You should have known better than that. That's not how Christians behave. Why, when are you going to get over that sin you keep slipping into? Instead of being gentle, we become provocative. We provoke. But Paul says, no, no, no. You walk in humility and gentleness so that we all will flourish, so that we be united. So that's the second one. Number three, we walk 
with patience. Walk with patience, okay? Now, um, patience is tricky uh, because culturally we are not bred for patience at all. I mean, uh, literally we live in uh, the least patient, non-resilient culture in the history of humanity. If you don't believe me, I'll prove it, okay? This happened to me this week, but I'll just prove it. Uh, How many times have you gone to the Chick-fil-A drive-through um, only to find somewhere in the range of 6,000 other cars um, in that drive-thru, said drive-thru? It happens. Every time you go there, that's not Sunday, right? Yeah, you could go right now. It'd be great. There's no chicken, but you could go, and there's nobody in line. But every other time, there's like 6,000 other cars, uh, and, and, and then you turn your head, and you look into the building, and you see through the glass that there's like two people standing in line in the building. So moment of truth, okay? What do you do at that moment? What do you do? I'll tell you what I do, okay? This is what I do. This is what went on in my head this week. Oh, you gotta be kidding me. I don't wanna have to walk. That's what, that was in my brain. I don't wanna have to walk. I don't wanna have to pull into a parking spot and get out of my air-conditioned truck and walk into that joint and actually talk to a person face-to-face and then wait in a shortened amount of time for my food, carry my own bag out to my own truck to eat my own sanctified chicken in the privacy of my own car. That's crazy. I'll wait for the 6,000 other people, okay? And listen, that's us all the time. It's Chick-fil-A notwithstanding. That is us all the time. You want to know if you are an impatient person? Pull out your phone, open up Google, and see. let that little spinny bar start to go when it's not working the way that you want it to work, and just see what your response is. The internet in my hand isn't working immediately, right? This is, we live in the least patient society of all time. Now hear me, our lack of patience creeps into our church. Our lack of patience creeps into our churches, y'all. Actually, we're often impatient with the immaturity of others around us. Man, this happens all the time. It's like we, it's like we don't believe the things that I say to you all the time. It's like we don't believe the Bible. When, when, when I tell you that growth is slower than anybody wants it to be, it's like we don't believe it. Growing and transforming into the image of Jesus Christ is slower than anybody wants it to be. And we assume that it should go faster for us and for each other. Now, the the reason why we think that it should go faster is because occasionally we'll hear some guy's testimony and he had some radical transformation happen. Like the Holy Spirit hit him, blew him up in prison or something. And like he went cold turkey on all of his sins and literally like got released and started a speaking and touring ministry. And now he flies all over the place, just kind of flutters through life. Like everything is going great. And, and And we hear that and we're just like, that's how sanctification is supposed to happen. But I'm just telling you, 20 years of ministry, I'm just telling you, that's not how it ever happened happens. Not even for that guy. Actually, beware of that guy, because it never happens like that. Sanctification, growing in Christ, happens like this, and this is all of our testimonies, or it should be, a day in and day out obedience that over time, not overnight, but that over time transforms us. Years, decades, of faithfully pursuing Christ. So we need to be patient. Goodness, with ourselves, but with one another. See, Christians often find themselves impatient when believers aren't where they are. Like you're never patient 
or you never need patience for people who are further ahead of you or people who are at where you're at, but people who are just a couple steps behind you, you need patience for those people. We find ourselves impatient with those people. Why don't they just grow up? Why don't they just stop doing that thing? Why don't they give more money? Why don't they serve? Why don't they serve? Like I'm serving everywhere. Why don't they serve? Why don't they just make better decisions? And it's real easy to look at the person who's two steps behind you and think, why don't they? But it's really hard to remember that you were two steps back a little while ago. And someone was probably thinking the same thing about you, but our memories are so short and we just think it's easy to judge people who are a couple steps behind us, much easier than it is to judge ourselves. But Paul says, if we wanna be united, we must be patient with one another. We have to walk in patience. So, so here's the truth. You know why I'm gonna be patient with you? And trust me, I need patience with you. You know why I'm gonna be patient with you? Because I need you to be patient with me. I've needed you to be patient with me and I will continue to need you to be patient with me. Like if we get to do this church thing together for however many years we get to do this thing together, you're gonna need to be patient with me as your pastor because I'm gonna let you down. And if I haven't let you down already, it's just because you haven't been here long enough. Seriously, and listen, you're gonna let me down too. This is the nature of human relationships. But Paul says, walk in patience with one another. Walk in patience with one another. Last one, number four. The fourth one is that we need to bear with one another. To bear with, bearing with one another. Now, let me uh, try and explain what it means to do this uh, in, in the context of the text. He's talking with Christians, Christians talking with Christians. So let me, let me tell you what I think this means. This is within the larger church of Jesus Christ, like within the larger church, uh, not think of our church and you know, other churches and denominations, but within the universal church, there are a number of secondary or tertiary issues that distract and divide Christians. It happens to us today, and it happened back in Ephesus. The primary one back in Ephesus were Jews and Gentiles. Do you need to be Jewish to be a Christian, or can you be a Gentile and be a Christian? And then all the things that go with that, food rights, ritual rights, all these things kind of play into that. And they divided over these issues. And today, those things still happen, even though we're not talking about circumcision or not anymore, but there are still things that we're talking about. I covered some of them in my intro, things that divide us. Let me give you a couple more, okay? Predestination versus free will. Split the church. End times theology, pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, who the heck knows what kind of mill? Split the church. You know, another thousand fractures beyond that. End times, that'll mess you up, right? Worship styles, hymns, contemporary, drums, are those demonic rhythms? Like, uh, you know, worship wars, you've been to churches where this happens? Splits churches all the time. Should a pastor preach wearing sneakers? Splitting churches, right? Left and right. Just all over the place. Which version of the Bible to use? Goodness, churches split over that. I saw a YouTube video this week um, of a really, like a fundamentalist Baptist church, like crazy conservative fundamentalist Baptist church. In the video, I don't know if it was a pastor or just a member of the church or something, but the guy gets up in, in, in front of his church and he pulls up his Bible, not his Bible, a Bible, and he says, this is an NIV Bible. 
And some people think that you can get saved with the NIV Bible. But here's what I think. And then he took the Bible and he ripped it apart and he threw it into the church. I'm not joking. I'm not making that up. Now, if I'm in that room, I'm thinking, where is the door, right? Check, please, this cuckoo, right? Like, I gotta get out of here. But then the video goes on and he grabs an ESV. He says, this is the ESV. And you think you can get saved with this and he rips it. And he gets the new living. This is the NLT and he rips it. This is the message and he rips it in half. He's throwing Bibles into his church because in that church, it was King James Version or nothing. Y'all, that's crazy. It's craziness. It's scary, actually. That's terrifying. And I watch that and I judge that guy and then I think to myself, wait a second. Oh, junk. See, I've been a Christian for a few decades now and I've watched tons of people, myself included, take one segment of thought or theology and taken that and and said, hey, if you don't believe this, then you're out. Crazy Bible guy, that guy's nuts, but we're just as prone to this, y'all, myself included. If you don't believe this about the spiritual gifts, if you don't believe this about the Lord's Supper, if you don't believe this about women in ministry, if you don't believe those things, then we can't fellowship together. But those are secondary or tertiary issues, y'all. Every single thing I just mentioned. Now, there are some things that are primary. There are things that we would say theologically are essentials of our faith. They are essential, okay? They're not up for debate. The deity of Christ, it's an essential part of the Christian faith. The sinfulness, the fallenness of humankind, that is an essential of the faith. The authority of the scriptures, that is an essential. Those are just a few, okay? But I would just say, if you want to know all the essentials, look at the historical creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, those are kind of the places where they distill down all of the essentials of, if you believe these things, you're a Christian. If you don't believe these things, you're no longer kind of playing the same game. It's a different game when you start to deny the essentials. So there are those things, but in other points of theology, goodness, we need to bear with one another. We need to bear with one another. St. Augustine of Hippo put it like this. This is a quote that's attributed to him. You may have heard this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Essentials, unity. We, we must be unified on the essentials. In non-essentials, liberty. There's freedom to disagree. But in all things, we must be charitable with one another. Bearing with one another. So listen, there are members of this church, covenant members in this church, who don't agree with me on theology. <laughs> There's certain points of theology that some of y'all don't agree with me on. That's okay. Goodness, we, we pay, they're staff members. We pay people on our payroll who do not have a point-to-point lineup with me of agreement. I mean, frankly, if I'm honest, even in the elder room, we have secondary or tertiary objections even within that group. That's okay. That's, a, that's actually a good thing. But unity is essential. 
Unity is essential. This is why verse three, I know we're only on verse three. That's why it's gonna take us an hour. Verse three. After those four things, walk in a manner worthy with humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. Verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Y'all, it says maintain unity. Be eager to maintain unity. Now let's blow up another misconception. It says unity, not uniformity. I read the Greek this week. It means unity, not uniformity. You know they're not the same, right? You can be united with people who are, dis- I mean, complete opposites of, of you on certain beliefs. You can still be unified with people. It, we're not pursuing uniformity. We are pursuing unity. It's like, uh, it's, it's like the difference between oneness and sameness. Oneness is not sameness. Let me illustrate. Uh, for those of us who are married, we realize that we married a very different person than we are. Okay, we, we married somebody who is not the same as us. Okay, and yet we are called to be one. We're called to oneness. But, but Marcy and I, we are different. We are different people. We have different theologies on really important things like, like how to load the dishwasher. We divert on our theology around how well to, do, uh, to cook a steak on the grill. Medium rare, like Jesus would have eaten it. Okay, just so you know. We diverge on those things. We diverge on how to properly squeeze toothpaste out of the tube. One person in our relationship does it incorrectly by squeezing from the center. Okay, the other person does it correctly by grabbing the bottom of the tube and working your way up. Okay, I won't tell you who it is. All right, but we are incredibly different people. We're incredibly different. And listen, the goal, the, the goal of marriage is not uniformity. The goal of marriage is not uniformity. Can, I mean, can you even imagine if it was the goal for me to get Marcy to be like a clone in my image? That's terrifying. That's not the goal of marriage. Uniformity is not the goal of marriage. Oneness is. Sameness is not the goal of marriage. Oneness is. And that's what Paul is saying here. We need to pursue unity. We need to pursue being united by walking in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. As we walk in that, that's how we'll find unity. That's how we will be eager to maintain unity. Now, the next three verses, verses four, five, and six, uh, Paul's going to show us what we should be united around. He's kind of just given us in those first three verses the how, how we should be united. These last three verses, he is going to show us what we must be united around. So look at verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Now, this is what Paul is saying here. You know why I just listed those four things and how you can walk in unity? You know why I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? You know why it takes all of this stuff for us to walk united together? You know why? Because in reality, we're we're united around one thing. We are united in Christ. Like there are essentials, y'all. 
but there's really one essential, that we are united in Christ. He's saying, listen, there's really only one church here. There's one body. There's one church. Anybody want to do a a quick guess as to how many different churches there are in the Denver metro area? Anybody want to guess? Seven? That's low. Man, CCU is not representing well today. Eight? This isn't Price is Right, bro. Um, Okay, here's the number. Here's the number. 596,127 churches. That's actually not true. I made that number up, okay? <laughs> Listen, there's a, there's a lot. I Googled it. I couldn't figure it out. Hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of churches in the Denver metro area. But Paul is saying here, uh-uh, there's actually only one. There's actually only one. Now, it's okay that we have chosen to worship with different styles and different secondary stances, but Paul's saying there is one thing. You are united all together in Christ. There's one church. There's one body, and it's made up of those who are worshiping Jesus Christ at Mission Hills and at Red Rocks, at Foothills and at Calvary, at First United Methodist and at Shepherd of the Hills Lutheran. All of them make up one body, worshiping one Lord with one baptism in one spirit. They're all our brothers and sisters, y'all. So we walk in humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in here, but also with them. Lest we start to think that we're the right ones lest we start to think that we're the best ones. Goodness, lest we begin to think that we're the only ones. And we start ripping up the Bible and throwing it at them. Because that's where it leads, y'all. Be careful. I say this to me, just maybe even more so than to you. Be, Be careful how you talk about other churches. Be careful how you talk or think or judge other Christians. Because the text says we're one. And if that's true, then you might be judging you. See, our horizontal relationships with one another, like our unity with one another, that's where Paul starts, this one another kind of unity. He says it's directly connected to our vertical relationship to the Father, our unity with Christ. So the horizontal is playing out the truths of the vertical. So church, when Paul moves from addressing belief and moves to addressing behavior, he starts with the church. He starts with the corporate body being united. How we walk with one another is how we walk in a worthy manner. That's how you know if you're walking in a worthy manner. This is why it's so tragic to hear about people leaving churches all the time. Now, you can leave churches, and that's fine. There's good and right reasons to leave a church. But often I hear about people leaving churches for silly reasons, for less than godly reasons, because they don't like the song selection a certain week, because they have a conflict with a certain staff member, don't like their personality, because the carpet's not the right color, or the ceiling's too low, or there's a newer, cooler church that's by them, or their pastor changes up his shoes. I mean, goodness, there's so many things we can be divided over. Things that are okay for us to be divided over. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, 
how we see certain texts. These are okay to be divided over, but it's tragic that Christians are now known more for how we divide than why we are united. So let me end with this illustration. I heard this week um, a story from a guy who, he went to college, he was a freshman in college at a state school and uh, he went to pledge for a fraternity. So uh, they, they, he went as a pledge and there were all kinds of initiation rituals. Uh, if you've pledged for a fraternity, that happens. Most of which are inappropriate for us to talk about at church, okay? Um, but there was one uh, initiation ritual in this frat that I thought was really interesting, okay? Uh, it was powerful. They gathered all of the guys, all these pledges and all the frat guys brought them into a gymnasium. And they brought them into this big gym, basketball gym, and they were going to have a race. They were going to race and do some sprints. And the pledges were supposed to race against one another to figure out who's the fastest in the group. And, and so they lined them up on the end line of the basketball court, and they would have them sprint to the other end line and back. And they were just seeing how fast these guys were. And the guys in the frat said, there's only one way to win. There's only one way to win. See, whoever touched that line, finished first, whoever finished the race first would get celebrated by the the, the frat guys and they would get brought over to the group of the frat guys and they would get to sit out and all the other guys would line up and they would race again. Problem was, whoever finished first in that second race would then come over and be celebrated and that first guy would have to go back and line back up and race again. And so they would race and they would race and they would race. And your goal was to win so that you would have enough time to rest so that you could race again. Well, these are 18 year old dudes. And so there's a lot of testosterone. Okay. There's a lot of competition going on. And so all these guys are like trying to win. They're like, they want to be known as the fastest they want in this frat. They want to win. And the older guys, right before they race, every, every time they line up, they say, there's only one way to win. And they blow the whistle and they run. So they take off running. And after the first race, the fastest guy gets to the side and is celebrating. It's like, oh yeah, catches his breath. But then they run a second race and they have to swap. And they run race after race after race. And this guy said it took them like 35, 45 minutes of sprinting. And they're running and all these older frat members are chanting. Every, at the beginning of every race, there's only one way to win. And then at the end of every race, there's only one way to win. And by, the, by 30 minutes, these guys are getting exhausted. And the frat guys are getting tired and they're chanting, there's only one way to win. There's only one way to win. There's only one way to win. And 18 year olds aren't the smartest creatures out there, okay? Like, trust me, I used to be one. I used to be one of y'all. So like, we're just not, okay? But, but race after race, these guys are certain that the only way to win was to be the fastest. That the only way to win was to catch your breath long enough so that you could run another race and outlast all the other guys. But finally, after so many races, one of the guys figured it out. It was a trick. The frat guys were were trying to teach these pledges a lesson. And the lesson is that there's only one way to win. And by focusing on being the fastest or beating everyone else out, focusing on your own pride and your own ego and your own abilities was only a short-term win. Because in reality, they could never sustain it. See, see, the lesson was actually there's only one way to win. And the only way to win that race was to finish together. 
the fraternity united was more important than any one guy. That was the lesson. And when they finally figured out that they all crossed the finish line at the same time and they can stop running is the moment they learned that lesson. Church, I want you to hear this as we close today, that there's only one way to win this race as a church. There's only one way to win. And it's together. It's by being united. Gosh, it's so much easier to to be a critic of a church than it is to be one who pursues gentleness. It's so much easier to point out others' flaws than to patiently endure with someone. It's so much easier to divide than it is to be united. So church, this is God's word for us today. Paul turns from belief to behavior and he starts with us. He doesn't start with you individually. He starts with us, with we, be united. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is in all and above all and through all. Let's pray together. Lord, we bless you for this text. Lord, for the good gift that it is to us. That before you even turn to us as individuals, you say, that we should pursue unity. That we should be eager for this. That the defining characteristic of our behavior change in you should first and foremost be how we relate to one another. And gosh, Lord, I'm so guilty of of raising up walls, of creating barriers, of judging and and saying things both in my heart and with my mouth that are disparaging about other brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, for that, I repent. I pray we would repent of these things and that we would pursue, pursue unity, yes, within Fathom Church, but, but even beyond that, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So Holy Spirit, you're the true preacher here at Fathom Church. I can read this word and I can tell some jokes and share some stories, but you speak to and preach to our hearts and we ask you to do that. Convict us in areas. Build us up in areas. Holy Spirit, move in us a desire to see true unity in the body of Christ. This is on your heart, obviously, Father, and so we want it to be on our hearts as well. So Father, we love you. We thank you for this text and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.